It's really the and message after <laughs> after the splitting of the Red Sea. Where did they go? <laughs> anyway, the people the people murmur, and God provides. You can see the complaint line there and the gratitude line. How that changes, much like our prayer list. <laughs> anyway, Anthony Savaggio narrates his story. He's a commentary. He wrote a commentary on Exodus, but he, he's also a lawyer. So he, 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 he said, this is his story. I remember well the day that I learned that I passed the bar examination. I learned, I had taken the two-day exam in July, but did not learn I passed until middle December. I can remember praying over that envelope of us as I tore it open. When I saw that I had passed, I rejoiced and I thought to myself, finally, now the hard work is over. Boy, was I wrong. I soon began working for a large law firm and felt the pressures and demands of meeting my goals for billable hours. I could never figure out lawyers. Sometimes when we had to use lawyers, especially after my mom and dad passed away, how they bill us ridiculous hours and there's not enough hours in the day to comply to what they're billing us for. Are you if they got other clients. <laughs> I'm in gratitude because I got the inheritance. But anyway. <laughs> so the work had just begun. It was a hard road. And he, he says all this to say, maybe we've had similar experiences. You know, we, we went to Bible college. We graduated with a BA. We graduated, I graduated later on with an MA and said, well, now I'm ready. That's it, right? And then you find out as you do ministry, there's a book that needs to be written for all the things you never learned at Bible school. <laughs> that when you get and you deal with people and you deal with boards, they don't teach you how to do that while you're studying. They teach you how to do theology and do scriptures and understand ministry or how to grow the church, but not how to deal with the nuts and bolts that you face day in and day out. And I think a lot of us feel that way too. Often our celebrations and quickly in light of the reality that the hardest part is not behind us, it's not Egypt, <laughs> but rather ahead of us. We still gotta get to the promised land. And the same with our faith in Christ, that Christ has redeemed us, Christ has defeated sin and death, but we're not there yet. That's right. Right? That's right. So many of us have probably have had experience like that, and, it's, and sometimes it can be frustrating to come off such a joyful, victorious victory and then you encounter a setback, or what looks like a setback, or something you never expected to take place, because your diploma says you graduated, so everything should go well and fine from now on. So the people of Israel have had a similar experience to what I'm saying, and there was great deliverance, and Miriam, Joseph's, uh, Moses' sister, she's singing up a storm, right? The horse and rider thrown into the sea, and she's praising the Lord for giving the victory. And she's got the whole bunch of ladies playing the tambourine, hence the tambourine tonight. <laughs> yeah. okay. And they're having a good time and everybody's high-fiving themselves because they're out of Egypt. And then they enter the wilderness. <laughs> and soon they discover that God's defeat of Pharaoh by no means resolves everything. The song of victory at the banks of the Red Sea is slowly fading away. It's step by step. If Israel's deliverance from Egypt is a sign of faith or the sign of a birth of a nation, then their journey through the wilderness is a sign of their infancy, 
This is where they become toddlers. This is where they learn to stand up, fall down, stand up, fall down, stand up, fall down, and so on. And in this space and time that we call wilderness and we call desert, we're looking behind at slavery in Egypt. So we're looking at where we were in the past, but you're still looking towards the promised land. And the problem when you go on a journey and you're not arrived, you have not arrived yet to your destination point, is you have a habit of turning behind. You have a habit of turning behind and thinking maybe where you came from was a lot better to than when you're, where you are going. You know, so that's kind of what we see here. We have these three narratives. And I thought Pastor Betty was going to steal my thunder this evening, but anyway, she didn't. This morning. This morning, yeah. yeah. But anyway, we're back here in, the, in this situation that we're moving forward in chapter 15, verses uh, 22 to chapter 17, verse 7. There's three stories that need to be read entirely, and we'll take them in parts this evening. And we're in this place beyond Egypt. So we have been redeemed. So we're in this place beyond redemption. And the, the place where the, we were ruled by a, a system of anxiety, much like the anxiety we're going through today. And, and things were really bad, but now we enter this place, we sang up a storm, we celebrated with joy, and the tambourines have been put to the side and they gotta begin the journey one step at a time. And we come to chapter 15 at the end, and it says, when they came to Mara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Mara. In Italian, Mara means bitter, so it's the same word. So they must have taken it from the Hebrews. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. So he's going back to nature, something that he's created, and he's telling Moses, he threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. So within a day or so, or some people even would say hours, these people that just been miraculously delivered by God Almighty begin to complain. Mm -hmm. They have no water. Water is a vital source of life. So it's important that they need to drink. And the first place you come to get a little bit of water, it's bitter. It's bad. And who knows if it's even potable, right? if it's even healthy enough to drink. And sometimes we can hear many people in the church today complaining too yes. about bitter spiritual water and blaming the leaders for a lack of fresh drink. Poor Moses and Aaron, right? We haven't even got to the giving of the Ten Commandments and the, the golden calf scene, and this is already beginning to brew amongst the people. John Golden Gate, another scholar from England, said the Israelites don't complain about God or don't complain against God. No, but against Moses and Aaron, it requires less courage to criticize your human leaders than to criticize God, because you're afraid God. If he split that Red Sea, you know what he might do to me if I really voice my opinion to him? So I'll just go voice my opinion to the leaders, right? So, and, and that's something that we gotta be honest that as pastors, we don't like all, all this nitpicking and grumbling and complaining and growling for non-essential things, you know, for things that don't even have any substance. They're just trivial things. And now in this age of Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and texting, it's even worse, worse. So how do we live this life of holiness, this life of faith, this life dedicated to God beyond redemption, but short, short of consummation, short, short of reaching the point? It's, it's really a wonder how their praise can turn into bitterness so quick. 
which is not a sign there that, oh, look at them and not look at us. It's a sign there that what happened to them can happen to us. Yes. <laughs> it can easily happen to us. So then God tells Moses, throw that stick into a pool of water to sweeten it up for these grumbling people. Mm. Moses obeys, and the people see another miracle by God. And all you can do is re remind yourself of what you read earlier on before they were delivered, that they witnessed so many majestic miracles by God. Not only the deliverance and the redemption beyond the Red Sea, but even the ten plagues when they were going on and, and the saving of their children and what God provided for them so that Pharaoh finally let his people go, let the people of God go. And here they are, and, and they're complaining, and they, and they murmur, and they complain, and they murmur, and they complain, and then they murmur, and you can only think, don't they ever stop? <laughs> don't they ever stop? So Moses cries out to God, how can I handle this situation? So he goes, he prays to God. God gave him that, put the stick in the water and so on. And, but I, I want to also say before we move on to the next part is that complaining is okay because the Psalms are full of complaint. But there's a difference between the Psalms and what's taking place in Exodus. Exodus are complaints of rebelliousness, rebelling against the leaders that God put in charge of them and rebelling against what God has provided for them. The Psalms, when they lament, which I think Pastor Petty will do in a couple of weeks in the morning, God willing, yeah. concerning what we're going through. But what the, the laments do is they complain about the, the, the felt abandonment of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not, hey, we're supposed to have water. Where's the water now? The water we got is bitter. What are we going to do? We can't drink that stuff. We, that's not healthy for us. You took us out of Egypt to make us die here with bitter water. So they're different complaints. Right? So we, we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, we need to sense your presence. That's a, that's a good complaint. We feel abandoned. And, and, but God, we know God doesn't abandon us, but we feel abandoned. Right? I like what George Morrison said. He said, it took one night to take Israel out of Egypt, but 40 years to take Egypt out of Israel. <laughs> so I had to go for a while there. So somehow it took them all but three days for them to forget, forget about God had done, and they began to, to, uh, to understand the truth that is contained in this sentence. Once you are set free, staying free is no easy matter. It's true. You know, we say God, but we gotta cooperate with God. That's what we believe as, as holiness people, as Wesleyan, Wesleyans, we believe that not only God's grace comes for us, but we cooperate with God, with the grace that he gives to us. Right. That's what we call in our denomination responsible grace. He saved us and he's given us responsibility to be co-workers with him in building up his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And once again, God turns water that, is, that leads to death into a water that leads to life. So they move on in their journey. And then we come to chapter 16. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Here we go again. Don't they ever stop? The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat. And ate all the food we wanted. <laughs> but you brought us back into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will bring down from heaven, bread from heaven for you, the people 
are to go out each day and gather enough for the day. And this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. I thought they should know by now. Anyway, in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that we should grumble, that you should grumble against us? And Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning. I thought Mark would say amen there. But anyway, he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Remember what I said earlier on? Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Anyway, there's supposed to be three more verses there. Oh, okay. there you go. Okay, no. That's gone back. See if you can go forward. Oh, maybe flash now, right? Should be verses 10 to 12. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israel community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you would eat meat in the morning, and you would be filled with bread. Then you would know that I am the Lord your God. So what, one of the themes in the wilderness journey is, is that there's what we call thin places, liminal places. It's a place where they lack resources and you're pushed up, your back is pushed up against the wall because there's, you don't know where you're gonna get it, right? So they're complaining there's no food and they're complaining that, that, that there's nothing to eat, no bread, no meat and of substance. But it's in those thin places of existence that we learn to trust God. That's right. It's when we have, when we lack that we can trust the God without lack, the God that provides for us. And we learn to trust him in those places. And you would think after the sweetening of the water and all the glorious miracles that they've seen and the, the splitting of the Red Sea that these people will get it, but they don't. They don't get it. And, and in, in between the episode from chapter 15 to chapter 16, there was a little, little brief uh, episode there where they, they reach Elam. And there's 12 springs of water there. So God's almost given them uh, a preview of what's going to take place when they reach the promised land. So they, they had that little moment even in between the no water to the no food episode. And they still are going to raise their voices to God's leader. Because the belly of these grumbling people is causing a little bit of a memory lapse there. And they're beginning to see their past in a different way than they've seen it when they were actually slaves and lived there. And that's what's taking place there. They even said, you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, whoever can think that must have a hard heart and a brainless mind. Because after what God's done for you, how could you come to that conclusion? So Israel's growling stomach 
is, is messing with their memory. <laughs> and somehow now they see Egypt as a gourmet restaurant <laughs> with the pots of meat. And it was nothing like that. Have they forgotten that Egypt was the place where they had to throw their babies to die in the Nile River? That Egypt was the place that said, there's no day off. You just work, you work, you work, you work, you work till you drop. Literally, you drop, you die, and then somebody else takes your spot. Israel was, the, I mean, Egypt was the place that, that they had brick quotas and so on and so on. Have they forgotten that? And now all of a sudden, Egypt becomes gourmet restaurants and club med <laughs> that you were taken well care of. But when I read this, it's not so much looking at the grumbling of the people. The biggest surprise for me this time reading through the Exodus was that in all our accounts is how God responds <laughs> to these rebellious people yeah. who never stop complaining about their stomachs. The surprise is that God provides and rains down manna, which the Hebrew is mahu, and mahu means what is it or what is that, you know, because they couldn't think of what it is. And it's a fine, flaky substance. We read in scripture, and it looks like little wafers, communion bread, or whatever. And it tastes like honey, which is another sign of the promised land. You will be going to a land of milk and honey. So God's given them these little episodes, whether at Elam with the springs of water, and now with the wafer, of what they are to expect when they finally get to the promised land. And Moses says, it's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. And rather than punish them, God provides resources needed for their survival. Rather than showering them with brimstone, Yahweh, God, graciously provides bread from heaven. What a picture of grace unmerited. And then, then we come to this part that of God providing, and this, this is the line that I want us to remember. Their complaining does not trigger God's wrath. Their complaining does not trigger God's anger. Their complaining triggers God's action. Amen. His action. And that blows me away. See, God gave them specific instructions to gather, and Pastor Betty already hint, hinted at that this morning, and on the sixth day you gather twice as much, uh, so that on the Sabbath day you do not gather, yeah. right? So that means there must be some evidence left over from Saturday if they want to gather even on that day. But these are the people that complain and grumble and murmur. And guess what they do? They disobey God. And they decide to also take more than they needed and to also disobey what God told them to do, that they took more than they needed. And they don't stop. <laughs> they stash away some manna, and overnight it becomes foul, rotten, stinky odor. Imagine that like going through your compost. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's what became of what was supposed to be good if they obeyed the Lord. So they display a spirit of thanklessness for what God has provided for them. And they've turned, they haven't understood the Sabbath. Remember the Ten Commandments haven't been given. The only thing we know about the Sabbath is that the Lord took a Sabbath when he created the world. And now he's always bringing this idea of Sabbath into their lives, even yet before the command that is given to them. And he, he's telling them, that the Sabbath isn't a shackling, hence the song by Rain Collective at the beginning, but liberation. The Sabbath isn't a day that, that we feel tied up because we can't do what we want, but we're free because we don't have to do what the world tells us to do, right. right? We don't have to go to work. We don't have to do brick quotas. We 
can enjoy the day that the Lord has given us. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I think that's what the psalmist was talking about. It also teaches us in this passage right now is that abundance is not for hoarding. What God has given us, if God has given us an abundance, is to be shared with one another. That's right. Right? Because when you hoard too much, it turns foul as an order. It stinks. It rocks. And I won't get more uh, pictures than that <laughs> to upset your stomachs, right? And because God provides, we are to trust Him. And that goes back to what Pastor Betty said this morning. Give us this day our daily bread. Trust God. In the narrative, Aaron is also told to take some man and put it in a jar. Remember, the tabernacle hasn't been built. The ark hasn't been built as well. And that's where the, that jar with the manna will be for, for wherever that ark is right now. And the Anna Jones, as far as I know, hasn't found it yet. <laughs> so that ark right there has that. It's a reminder that what does this jar mean? It means God is faithful. God is faithful. He's the God of more than enough. enough. He's the God that appears in the land of death, the wilderness, the land of death, and he gives life in the land of death. So whenever we're going through the valley of the shadow of death, life is there with us because God is the author of life and God accompanies us. And that's the Christian message, that death has been defeated. And that's the hope that we have in the midst of all that's going on in our present world right now, that death has been defeated and in Christ. Even though we die, yet we shall live. That's why I said that when we talk about intergeneration, we need to include the people that went before us that are at the cemetery because they're not dead if they're in Christ. They're still alive. I know they died a bodily death. They died a physical death, but they are alive in Christ. And if the honey wafers weren't enough, Gossa also provides some quail for them to digest. And you can read that part of scripture for yourself whenever you feel like, from verses 13 to 36 in chapter 16. So in the morning, manna. In the evening, quail. Now how good can it get? God gives you breakfast and he gives you dinner and all you gotta do is, is, is trust him. Trust him and pick it up, cook it, get it ready, cook it whatever way you want. Right? Look for some honey and put some honey on the, the, the that the quails are very, very small because I ate that at a 40th anniversary of a church in Ontario. And I tell you, you really got to be delicate to get that meat that's on that bowl, bowl, the bowl, on that little bird. And the people still fail to see that Yahweh has their best interest in mind. But the thing again here is that God's not coming down hard on these grumblers. Why? Because God wants them to know who he is. That he's not like the gods of the ancient Near East where you had to bring food to them instead of them bringing food to you. That's the reality of, of the Egyptian gods and the other gods of Assyria and the other lands around Israel and the, at that time and beyond that time. And then we have Aaron. He's speaking and the glory of the Lord appears in the cloud. What? Thankless, short-sighted, ungrateful bunch of complainers and murmurs, murmurs and God shows up in glory. This is not the way that we believe it should happen, right? But God did. Because you just never know. You just never know when God decides to show up. And he gives him a glimpse of his glory, not his anger, not his wrath. And he gives him a glimpse. That's what he's given to us. 
When Jesus died on the cross, the people finally got it and the glory of God was revealed to them. So he turned in potable water to potable water. He gave them manna in the morning, quail in the evening. They're on their way. And then they end up in chapter 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin. That doesn't mean sin in Hebrew. Huh? It's just the location. It's what it's called. Traveling from the place to place as the Lord commanded. They called at Rephidim where there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? This is repetition now, right? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock? What, they got livestock? You mean they had food all along? <laughs> and they didn't want to slaughter any of that to have a barbecue in the midst of the wilderness and die of thirst. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. They're really getting grumbling and growling and murmuring now. So they just had their stomachs filled, so they're looking for some water to chase down that food. <laughs> and they end up at this place over here. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock? Did you ever read that when you're reading about the complaint of food? That you thought that they're starving to death. And they're here, they're there traveling from Egypt. Remember they got the plunders that Pastor Betty spoke about? And part of the plunders is livestock. That means there's animals that they could have killed at any time and feast on. But they want God to provide. They don't want to touch their investment. Just like a lot of people say, okay, the Lord can take care of the church himself. My investment's my investment, not so fast. <laughs> Danger and deficit leads to complaining. They weren't going to die of starvation. They had livestock there. So it's a little bit of a different scene here. It's not impotable water. It's, they can't find any water at this place. And it's probably because some shepherds nearby in the wilderness around that time probably jammed up the water source and made it come to them. And this is made more evident in another passage where we have the, the fight that Moses gets engaged with the people that are living there in the desert. And I'll leave that for the time that we come back. It's, it's when the two of Moses' aid hold his arms out while they're engaged in a war. And that's all over the water source that we read about here. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you, always, you read about Christ the rock. And the rabbis always interpret this thing because he didn't get reprimanded here. He got reprimanded in the book of Numbers, a different episode, when he struck the rock, right? Out of line with God. But here, he struck the rock and water came out. And a lot of people said the rock that he struck was God. And Paul comes and he says that the Christ is the rock. And he uses this very passage to back up that. That was the living water that rose when there seemed to be no water in that place of death there. So Moses is instructed to take the elders with him, strike the rock with his staff. It touches the rock, and the people are rescued once again. Grumbling people rescued by God. God comes in the nick of time. He's always there when we need him. So did the Israelites really think they were being led out in the desert to die? I don't know. They did. But I suspect many of us can feel the same way when we look at sometimes the hard places that we go in life, the liminal places, you know, when you are a new family and you're looking for that extra money so that you can pay your mortgage and pay the groceries. A lot of us have all gone through, through those steps in life 
or traveling, or in our case, we ended up somewhere and not knowing where you're going to live or what you're going to do or how this is all going to unfold as you take a step at a time. You need to trust God. You know, nobody, you have your first house and, I don't know, everybody wants furniture right away. We had a mattress on the floor. I was our We got there. You learn to trust God and God will provide and give, give you the sources that you, you need. But we, we, we learn in this passage that freedom is hard. You know, we love to be free, but freedom is hard because we've got to lean into God. You know, we're going away from our self-dependency and to be codependent on the Father that created us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have time, go read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and read it alongside these chapters here and you can see what, what's happening in it. And this, this is what I think summarizes what's happening here and what Paul's talking about what happens to us in our encounter with the living Christ. It says, do not let your current circumstance define your ultimate reality. Right? Do not let your current circumstance define your ultimate reality. Do not let the news that we're hearing, and it's sad and we need to pray for what's going on, but do not let that define your ultimate reality and purpose in life to serve God. And, and never forget that the challenge that you went through in life or whatever graduation stage you are, and thinking now that in June when I turn 65, I can just go in the golden years. I've seen enough of the golden years TV sitcom. The golden years aren't so golden. <laughs> But I have to remember that God always has a purpose for us and always has something for us that the next step will have a challenge of its own. And all I can do is lean into him for whatever the next challenge is. You know, and I think the churches have to learn that too because the problem at the core of, of the sin that we see here in these chapters uh, dealing with you know, lack of water, lack of food, is that the Israelites are thinking about themselves. But on the other hand, we think of a God who thinks about us. That still comes to us. That still, when we say we don't have enough, he shows up in glory. I think that's a beautiful lesson to take home from this, that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and even Jesus quoting the words from Deuteronomy when he was in the wilderness, when he was tempted, when he needed to trust the Father, that God is an adequate source, Amen. even in a place of lack, yes. even in a liminal place of existence. God will provide for us. There's that verse from Psalm 88, and I'll close with this. Psalm 88, verse 19. Can God provide a spread? Or can God provide a table? whichever way you want to put it, in the wilderness. And the story of God and the story of humanity is, yes, 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 God will provide. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God that comes to us with abundance. And you share your abundance. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for times in life where we try to hoard our abundance and keep it for ourselves. We thank you, O oh Lord, that you are also the God that comes to us and provides living water. Even we heard this morning the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John, that we will never hunger and never thirst again because of what we have received in Jesus. We thank you, O oh Lord, that you do not only satisfy us. And what amazed me, O oh Lord, this time as I read through these chapters, is that even in the midst of our complaining, if we would just stop for a moment, and I ask you to open up our eyes that we can see your glory. Your glory, Lord. 
is what we seek. All heaven declares the glory of the risen Lord. We sing that, O Lord, and we pray that you would give us eyes to see that in the midst of this liminal space in which we're living right now, O Lord, across the world. Yes. Give us that moment where we behold your glory. And may you turn our complaints into praise for you and you alone. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God that's always with us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.